0: Well, keep your Bibles open at Genesis three. Uh, you'll find that helpful uh, as we go through this morning. Well, there was uh, once a well-to-do American family who consulted a genealogist to do some research on their family tree. Uh, unfortunately, he discovered some not so-good news about Great-uncle Zach. Great-uncle Zach had been convicted of murder, sentenced to death and electrocuted by electric chair. The family were a little bit snooty, and so they asked the genealogist to tweak the entry in their family tree to conceal this terrible shame. This is what the genealogist wrote. Uncle Zach worked for the Department of Justice for a number of years, after which he was given a chair in applied electronics in a well-known government institution. He became quite attached to it, held there by strong ties until eventually he died. His death came as quite a shock. Now, as we arrive at only the third chapter of the Bible this morning, we realize that there is simply no way we can cover up the family history. As a human race, we are descendants of this first human couple and try as we might, desire as we might, want to cover up the shame of our family history. We simply can't. As a result of their sin, our human nature has been corrupted. Every one of us is a descendant of Adam and Eve. We are descendants of sinners. And therefore, we could be nothing but sinners ourselves. Sinners by nature. Those of you who are parents, I uh, assume that, like us, you you never woke up one morning and decided, you know what, today I'm going to teach my children to be naughty Why don't we have to teach our children to sin? Because it comes naturally to them. We're sinful in our very nature. And it's important to grasp that reality. We are not sinners because we do wrong things. We do wrong things because we are sinners. Do you you grasp that? That is really crucial for our understanding of, of our human nature and our understanding of the gospel. We are not sinners because we do wrong things. We do wrong things because we are sinners. We're sinful by nature, and that flows out into our acts, our words, our thoughts. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 3 and see Adam and Eve, the first couple who had uh, inhabited this gloriously perfect world, world, as we see them fall into sin, we see not only them, but we see ourselves. And there is no point trying to hide the family history. Very simply this morning, we are seriously sinful. But God is gloriously gracious. We are seriously sinful. If Genesis 2 was like a mirror in which the perfect creation reflected the glory of its creator God, then in Genesis 3, that mirror is shattered into 10,000 pieces. It is not just cracked, it is shattered. And though every single little piece of that mirror still in itself reflects something, the perfection has been smashed. The reality is distorted. In its fallen state, this world and and our humanity with it still reflects something of the glory of the creator God. And yet, it is shattered. And the little tiny reflections of God's glory that we do see are just a tiny reflection of what we saw in Genesis 2 because evil has entered what, is, what was very good. And right at the outset, a question arises, where did that evil come from? There is a crafty snake in chapter 3 and verse 1, whom the rest of the Bible, as we uh, see the unfolding revelation of God, the rest of the Bible makes clear, well, this snake is possessed by none other than Satan, the devil. But where did he come from? Well, as we delve into the rest of the Bible uh, and see what Scripture teaches us, we discover that Satan, in fact, was once an angel. He was created by God to serve and worship him. Ezekiel 28 talks of Satan like this. It says, you were in Eden. Every precious stone adorned you. You were on the holy mount of God. On the holy mount of God, get that. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Isaiah 14 describes uh, what happened. How you have fallen, morning star, son of the dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Grasp that. Satan, this created angel, was on the holy mount of God, and yet said, I want a throne for myself above God. He was a beautifully created angel, and yet in his pride desired a throne above God. And he took other angels with him in his rebellion, and ever since that moment, he has set himself up against God. When did all that happen? Well, we're not told precisely, but clearly it was at some point between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3. Chapter 2, remember, was a is a detailed explanation of what took place on day six of creation week. We know that at the end of creation week, all of God's creation was very good. If Satan, an angel, was part of that creation, it was still good at the end of creation week. And yet by the time we arrive at chapter 3 and verse 1, Satan has fallen. He's now locked in this cosmic battle, this cosmic rebellion against God. And he is the one... Who is behind this snake that arrives in the garden and deceives Eve? But while we need to be clear about the role of Satan here, we also need to take care not to minimize human responsibility. Because the focus at this point, the focus at the moment, is not so much on Satan, it is on human sin, it is on human responsibility we are seriously sinful. How serious is our sin? We dethrone God. If you really don't grasp the seriousness of sin this morning, just think about those three words for a moment. The essence of sin is this, we dethrone God. Beth and I have often, in uh, children's work, children's ministry, explained sin like this. S-I-N, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. And I think that's a helpful way of understanding sin, not just for children. We dethrone God. The God who sovereignly created the cosmos the God who is rightfully king over all that he has created, and we throw him off the throne of our own lives. The author Mark Twain once encountered an arrogant businessman from Boston who pledged that before he died, he would make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He said, I'm going to climb Mount Sinai, and when I'm up there, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments at the top of my voice. In other words, he wanted to pretend he was God. I'm going to shout the Ten Commandments from the top of my voice. Mark Twain responded, I've got a better idea. Stay in Boston and keep them. But like that businessman, we want to dethrone God. What stunning arrogance and pride to think we can do a better job of running our lives than God can, and yet that is the essence of sin. Satan enters the Garden of Eden in the form of this snake, and he speaks to Eve. Now, it's it's unlikely that it was normal for animals to speak with humans, even uh, even in that garden. So Eve really should have been wary right from the word go, but she wasn't. She listened, and she found his words attractive because he offers her the chance to dethrone God. Did God really say... He's asking Eve to assess the truthfulness and the validity of God's word. Now, she's got absolutely no reason whatsoever to doubt the goodness of what God had said. And yet, as soon as Satan invites her to do so, her heart is opened to the possibility that she can decide for herself. And when Eve answers Satan in verse 3, she subtly changes what God had said. She subtly changes the command that God had given to Adam back in chapter 2. So you see, having been invited to question God's word by Satan, Eve is now revising God's word. She's revising her understanding of what God had said. How like many in our modern world is that? Even professing Christians who think it's okay to revise their interpretation of God's word based on their own wisdom and understanding. Now, notice Satan did not explicitly lie. He's too clever for that. It's far more dangerous for Satan to tempt Eve, tempting her to question God for herself. Satan's technique is so often subtle. We need to be on guard for that little voice that tempts us to question the Bible that little voice that tempts us to wonder whether God would really mind if we did this or that or the other. So the fall of humanity begins with Satan's little question. But it is human responsibility that is front and centre. You see, Eve places herself on the throne of her own life. And so she takes, she eats of the forbidden fruit. Never mind all the other good fruit that is in the garden. Never mind all the fruit that is on all those other trees that God has given them permission to eat. Never mind all that. This was an act of moral autonomy, placing herself on the throne of her own life. And she decides that she can determine what is right for her, not God. She takes control. And then she offers the forbidden fruit to Adam Now, Eve at least was tempted and deceived by Satan. He approached her directly. He deceived Eve into doubting the goodness of God's word. But Adam, well, look at verse 6. What do we notice about Adam? He was with her. He was there. He heard the conversation between his wife and this snake, and he didn't step in. He didn't tap her on the arm and remind her what God had said. He he abdicated his responsibility of leadership and he watches on as his as his wife is deceived, but then he eats it as well. He he probably saw, well well, Eve hasn't dropped down dead, so well, must be alright. So he eats as well. This is the one to whom God had spoken face to face. You must not eat. Eve, at least, had received the command secondhand. But Adam hears it directly from God himself, face to face, and yet he dethrones God. His sin was willful disobedience. And that is why in in Scripture, he's the one that bears the brunt of the blame. What a tragic day this was in God's perfect world. And like Adam and Eve... We dethrone God, the God who is rightfully Lord and King over all He's made, and we do—we decide we can do a better job of running our own lives than He can. Whether it is that we weakly give in to temptation, or whether it is that we willfully decide to sin, we ask the question: Did God really say? And we decide that we know best. We are seriously sinful realize sin for what it is. We are wrestling God off the throne of our hearts. We are seriously sinful. We dethrone God and so we deserve God's judgment. That is how serious sin is. Adam and Eve realize immediately what they've done. They see their physical nakedness. They're ashamed of it. But then, horror of horrors, they hear God walking in the garden and they realize not only their physical nakedness, they realize they're spiritually naked before him. But it seems that they're, they're more conscious of their nakedness and shame than they are aware of their sin against God. God's question in verse 9, where are you, is not because he doesn't know where they are. That question, where are you, is an invitation to them to confess their sin. But what do they do instead? Well, it's time for the excuses to come out. You know, from time to time, insurance companies reveal some of the ridiculous excuses that people have given to them um, when they make their insurance claims. I rather like some of these. There was a guy who said, I I was leaving work at 7 a.m., and reversed out of my driveway straight into a bus but the bus was five minutes early so shouldn't have been there (laughs) i I particularly like this one where the insurance company asks one of the drivers involved in in the crash sir could either party have done anything to avoid the collision and the guy replies yeah well the other person could have taken the train in other words not my fault and that's exactly what we get with adam and eve adam blames it on eve well it's her fault Uh, But notice, he also kind of says to God, it's your fault because you put the woman here with me in the first place. And Eve blames it on the snake, not my fault. And yet the reality is, it is their fault. It is our fault. Human responsibility for human sin. Sin is serious. We dethrone God and therefore we deserve God's judgment. And so all of the the wonderful blessing of chapter 2 now turns to curse. God is perfectly, dazzlingly holy, and so there are consequences for sin. Sin, first and foremost, is an offense against God. And because God is righteous and just, his judgment against sin is righteous and just. God had declared that if they ate that forbidden fruit, they would certainly die. And in that instant, Adam and Eve went from life to death. They didn't die physically immediately. In fact, Adam would live another 930 years. But from that moment onwards, they were dead people walking. The long process of decay and death had begun. And in a couple of weeks' time, as we come to chapter 5, we will be reminded of the reality. When you read Genesis 5, the refrain punching every sentence is, and he died, and he died, and he died. The long process of decay and death, not only for humanity, but for the earth, has begun. There are physical consequences, God says. Physical consequences now of living in a fallen world for for Adam and Eve and all their descendants. Childbirth is going to be filled with pain. That most precious of moments as a new life is brought into the world and it will be filled with pain for the mother. This time, 10 years ago, we were 19 hours into the 28 hours of labor as Beth gave birth to Caitlin. 28 hours filled with physical and emotional pain, minute after minute of pain. And I've no idea what it was like for Beth. (laughs) Childbirth is filled with pain. The perfect harmony of marriage is now disrupted as well. The woman will desire to control her husband. And he, in turn, will rule over her rather than lovingly lead her. For Adam, the, the pain will come through working the land. The work that was part of the creation blessing is now toilsome. There, there are these physical consequences of God's judgment. Humanity now lives in a broken world because that process of decay and death has begun. But more than that, there are spiritual consequences. Adam and Eve are shut out of God's garden. That place where he had dwelt with them, and they're locked out. Angels are put on guard to prevent these sinful humans coming near to God and and worse, still coming and eating from the tree of life. The blessing has turned to curse. This is death. This is what it means to be dead, cut off from God. They are dead people walking and so are we. Because in the same way, in Ephesians 2, Paul describes all of humanity outside of Christ as dead in sin. That is God's judgment upon us, not just physical death, but spiritual. Do you grasp how serious sin is? We dethrone God. Could there be anything more serious than that? Could there be anything more stunningly arrogant than to wrestle God off the throne of our lives? Yet that is what we do. We dethrone God, and therefore we deserve God's judgment. Sin is so serious that just as it shut Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, sin cuts off from us off from the God who created us. We are seriously sinful. But. What a wonderful word, but, is. We are seriously sinful, but God... Is gloriously gracious. Something terrible has gone on with the slides there because it should have uh, changed to. I think it's gone wrong. We are seriously sinful, but God is gloriously gracious, is what should be up on the screen right now. Now, we rightfully want to emphasize the perfect holiness of God and His justice. The justice that means that sinful humans must be shut out of his presence. And yet right here in the middle of this tragic chapter so early on in the Bible, we are faced with a God who is both just and gracious. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, apparently used to tell of an occasion when he was driving through a small town and was caught speeding. He admitted it to the policeman, but when he was told he, was told he would still have to appear in court the next morning. And he stood before the judge And he he pleaded guilty, of course. And the judge replied that there would be a fine of $10, one for every mile he was over the speed limit. But then the judge recognised Billy Graham and said, you violated the law and the fine must be paid, but I'll pay it for you. And the judge came down from the bench and went to the officer of the court, paid the $10 himself, and then took Billy Graham out for a steak lunch. And apparently, Billy Graham used to use that as an illustration of grace. The judge upheld the law. The penalty was paid, but he paid it himself. And that is what God does for repentant sinners. What does God do in the face of human sin? Well, look, he he pays the price for human sin and gives us a hope we don't deserve. In short, God does it all. What does he do? Well, he provides a sin covering. Adam and Eve, remember, had covered themselves with leaves. They were ashamed of their nakedness. But those leaves were pretty feeble coverings. They wouldn't have lasted long. But look at what God does. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where does the skin come from? What has to happen for God to make these clothes? Well, an animal has to die. The consequence for sin was that you will surely die. Death is going to enter the world, but who dies first? Not Adam and Eve, an animal dies first. It's an animal who dies to cover their sin. The first death in the Bible, and it's God who does it. This is a gift from God. God takes the initiative and provides a way for Adam and Eve's shame to be covered. Sin sin causes us to feel immense guilt, but it also causes immense shame. Sin makes us feel ashamed before God, does it not? and yet God in his grace provides a sin covering. This animal sacrifice in verse 21 is the first of thousands, millions of animal sacrifices that are made throughout the Bible's unfolding story. It is God's way that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sin. In order for sin to be dealt with, blood must be shed. The blood of a a substitute, one who dies instead of the sinner In Genesis 3, it's an animal who dies so that Adam and Eve's sin and shame might be covered. Later, God was to provide his people with a a whole system of sacrifices based on that same principle. Sin cannot be dealt with other than by the shedding of blood. And yet right here, even in Genesis 3, God is pointing us to the time that he would give his own son, our Lord Jesus, who would become our sin-covering. By his death in our place as our substitute, our sin and shame can be covered. Isn't that good news? His sacrificial death is the sacrifice that fulfilled what all the other biblical sacrifices pointed towards. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was the only human for whom a sacrifice did not need to be made. He had no sin of his own to deal with. He alone was pure and spotless, unblemished by sin. He's the only man who ever lived who did not possess a sinful nature. And yet in his own body, he bore all of our sin to the cross. He became our sacrifice. Whereas Adam and Eve tried to pass the blame, instead Jesus said, pass it all here. I'll take all the blame, and he gave himself as the sacrifice by which our sin might be covered. Can I just say to you this morning, if you have not come to Jesus and cast yourself helplessly on him as your saviour, then I pray that this morning you may grasp how serious your problem of sin is and how desperately you need Jesus. He died in our place so that we do not have to pay for our own sin. He paid it all. And he invites you to come and believe. And in doing so, receive his gift of grace. But for those of us who have already done that, who have already trusted in Jesus and are walking with him as our Lord, let me reassure you of this. Though we still sin. And every day falls short of the glory of God. Though we still know the reality and the attraction of sin in our own lives, sin does not hold any power over us anymore. It does not hold any shame. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God is gloriously gracious. He provides a sin covering. But, but that is not all the gospel is. That is not all the good news of the Bible comes to. We, we, in fact, we need more than that. Which is why it is good news that God not only provides a sin covering, he promises a serpent crusher. Hidden away in the middle of the dark curse of Genesis 3 is the first glimpse of the rest of the Bible. Verse 15, as as God talks to the snake, and and in doing so, he talks to the devil who is behind him. He he promises that a a human descendant of Eve will crush the devil's head. He talks first to the snake itself, but then in the second half of the verse, he's he's addressing the devil. And he promises a human being who will crush the head of Satan. Satan. Who is it? Well, of course, it's just a faint glimpse, but already God is showing us Jesus. Right here in the middle of the judgment for human sin, as we are overwhelmed with the seriousness of human sin, God, in his grace, promises a serpent crusher who will one day come, and he will come to defeat Satan once and for all. And he will undo all the havoc that Satan has wreaked upon this world. Jesus is the one who came... And Jesus withstood Satan's temptation. Jesus was, was tempted like all of us. He was tempted like Eve. Satan came and spoke to Jesus face to face like he did to Eve and tried to tempt him. And yet Jesus endured that temptation. He withstood it all. How did he do it? Well, he did what Adam and Eve did not do. He fired back at Satan the word of God. Jesus was tempted and yet did not sin. He Defanged Satan in that moment. But then at the cross, well, it looked to all the world as though Jesus was the one who was crushed. And in fact, in a way, it was. Isaiah tells us that it was the Lord's will to crush him. To mere onlookers, it looked as though that was the end of the story. To Satan, it must have looked as though he had mortally wounded the Son of God. And yet the truth was very different because Jesus, who had been left cold and dead, buried in a tomb, was raised to life again. And as he marched out of the grave, he trampled over death itself. Death, the consequence for sin, the great enemy, and Jesus has trampled all over it. Death could not hold him. Satan, who thought he had won the day, now lies crushed beneath the feet of the risen Lord Jesus. Turn with me very briefly the final book in the Bible, to Revelation chapter 20. And this shows us from heaven's view the reality of the time in which we now live, That this period between Jesus' resurrection and his return in glory. And what do we see? Well, there's an angel in chapter 20. There's an angel, and in his hand he has a great chain, and he seizes the dragon, the snake, Satan, and he ties him up. You see, in these days, between the resurrection of Jesus and his glorious return, Satan has, been, Satan has been hurled out of heaven and he's trying to wreak havoc on the earth, but he is in chains. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting my dog. He's rather lively and excitable. He doesn't very much like being on a lead. If you try and walk him on a lead, he will pull and pull to try and get away from you. But he can't. And Satan is like that. He has limited power in this world. He's like a dog on a lead. But at the return of Jesus, look what happens Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil is thrown into a lake of burning sulfur. When Jesus returns, Satan will no longer even be on a lead, he will not be on a lead, wreaking havoc where he can. He's going to be thrown into hell for eternity. Because Jesus is the serpent crusher. He's defanged Satan. He's defeated him at the cross and at the empty tomb. He's put Satan on a lead. And one day he will confine him in hell for eternity. That is a crushing victory. Jesus has done everything that was required, Satan's head has been crushed. And though he still has some power, he is kicking and screaming on his lead. But he's a defeated enemy. And one day he will be fully and finally crushed when Jesus returns, because Jesus is the serpent-crushing saviour of the world. What a gift of grace. We are seriously sinful, but God is gloriously gracious. Let's rejoice together as we sing our closing song in Christ alone.